I want to read to you an account of uh, one of Jesus' days, I suppose, and um, his interactions with um, different types of people during that particular day. And we're seeking to look at the different ways people uh, respond to Jesus, uh, depending on different groupings. And I'm going to use those as lenses to look at um, our own lives and how we respond to Christ also. So just pay attention to the various groups you see here. And uh, let's read from verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. It says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. I'm going to jump right in. Uh, We're thinking about some very serious spiritual realities this evening, um, just to make a change, I suppose. Uh, But one of the things that struck me as I was just meditating on how to get into this subject is just the reality that many of us do not necessarily act or live in such a way that seems to to match up with the weight of the spiritual realities that we talk about in the Christian faith. And uh, I think that when you consider the weightiness of the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that God became flesh and walked among us, that he was crucified for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, was witnessed to by many, and promised also to return one day to judge the living and the dead. You think there are no more important truth claims than that, are there? And yet, for many of us, our lives are lived with our heads down, barely conscious of spiritual reality. And I'm not just speaking to those of you who are not Christian. It can be true also in the lives of Christians or those who profess faith in Jesus. That there is something, uh, there there isn't sort of a match between the greatness of the claims and a corresponding passion and urgency in the lives that we live as a result. And I think there are all kinds of reasons for that. There can just be downright the reality of procrastination, that you think, I'm going to do it one day. If you're one of those people who puts off the big decisions in life, um, so I'll deal with it one day. And people can approach that, be like that with spiritual realities, can't they? Think, I'm going to, I'm going to face up to this one day. I've spoken with people over the years who've basically said, I want to do what I want to do right now. I'm going to, I'm going to get right with God at some point. Whether they ever do or not, I'm not sure. But there can be a procrastination. There can be just the realities of day-to-day distractions. I don't know about you, but I think that life is full of life or mind-dominating challenges. 
And you can think about the big things, like whether you're in the right career, whether you're doing the right stuff with your time, whether you are, um, whether you are pursuing the right person for marriage, or whether you, know, you want to have kids, whether you want to buy a home, all that kind of stuff. But there's also just the mess that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that makes it hard to, to, to have our minds engaged on a spiritual plane. I can put it like that. There's procrastination, there's distraction, there's fear often. I don't think it's uncommon that people will not, um, will not engage, will not face up to spirituality out of fear. What is God going to demand of me if, if I give him my life entirely? What do I have to give up? What's the cost going to be? What will the cost be relationally? And so you see us all interacting with Jesus in very different ways and often, um, often just avoiding the decisions or, or, or apathetic to him or any of these kinds of things can be going on. And for Christians, it can be that you're, you're, drawn, you're drawn constantly back into certain sin patterns or you're, you're consumed with the immediate and not the eternal. And I just want to say, you know, what I'm interested in in this passage is the fact that Jesus dealt with all different kinds of people. He knows the condition of your heart. Sometimes he approaches people with stern challenges and warnings because they know better or because they need, they need the fear of God in them. And you see conversations like that in the Gospels where that's the way he speaks to you and he wants you to wake up. Other times there's, there's a tenderness and gentleness in the way Jesus speaks uh, because he understands our pain, he understands our sorrows, he understands our anxious concerns. And so he, he knows how to woo us. But in any case... However he deals with different people in the Gospels, the call and the summons is the same, and it's a universal call and summons, which is this, that he makes a claim upon your life entirely. He did not give himself to have a portion of you. He gave himself to have you, all of you. He wants you entirely. And what I want to do is, is look at I want to look at three different groups that are mentioned in this passage um, who characterize some of the reasons or hindrances, I should say, that prevent people from engaging with Jesus in the way that he deserves, I suppose, uh, that prevent them from engaging with spiritual reality in an honest and consistent way. And I, want to, I, think, I think that all of us will recognize some of these patterns in our lives, perhaps one or, or two of them. And we're going to consider the crowd. We're going to look at even the demons and also Jesus' own family. And today it's going to have more of a diagnostic approach because we're looking at some of these examples as negative examples. And it's important that we look at the condition of our hearts with a view to diagnosis often if we want to see spiritual progress. Next week I'm going to, we're going to double back and look at the disciples and consider this from a more positive perspective. But I hope that God, I'm convinced God is going to be speaking to some of you in, in a very direct way through this. So... Let's look at this then first. I want to consider, first of all, the crowd. And if there's one thing that you could say about the crowd and the way that they engage with Jesus through the Gospels, I think that it would be captured by this phrase of emotion without conviction. There is plenty of emotion in the way that they pursue Jesus here in this passage. I don't know if you you noted how many regions and areas that were being named here. This is a vast crowd that are gathering and clamoring. And there's something like a hysteria that's upon them. So much so that Jesus is concerned for his own life. He he fears that if they 
are able to access him, their, their desire to touch him will result in him being crushed to death. So he gets on a boat. So there is, there is no lack of excitement and emotion and passion and even hysteria among the crowd. But you see through the Gospels that the crowd is a very interesting and ambiguous thing. It's not really spoken of positively here or elsewhere. It's because on the one hand, of course, Jesus is worthy of that kind of passion. I believe that entirely. I think if people saw him for who he is, you would not be able to withhold or hold back the masses from Christ. But at the same time, throughout the Gospels, the crowd is a very fickle thing. They're interested in Jesus one minute, but then they're not there when he's crucified. They're not there, or they are there, perhaps a different crowd, I suspect, but they're there baying for his life. And those who were so interested in him at this stage are, are, are nowhere to be seen. After he's raised from the dead, they're gone. Just a, a very small minority, a remnant left in that upper room praying. When Jesus gives them harsh and hard words at various points in the Gospels, they disperse. So for all the emotion, for all the passion, for all the interest and zeal, they just as quickly leave him and abandon him. And one of the things you never see in the crowd, despite the passion and excitement, is the very thing Jesus calls for, which is repentance and faith in him. The willingness for each person in that crowd to turn from his old life and embrace Christ entirely. And you ask the question, well, what's going on here? Why? And how does this speak to us? Because I think, I see this as, this is a pattern I've, I've witnessed many times over the years in pastoral ministry and also before that. The people are, people can be very engaged with Jesus emotionally one moment and, and walk away from him the next. I went to a school where among my friendship circle there were guys who, um, who were so, seemed so passionate for Christ at one stage. They were emotionally all there. But they came reached a certain age and en masse, more than half of that group just walked away from him. You think, how is that possible? How can you go from, from passion, zeal, excitement to abandonment in quite a short space of time? How does that happen to, to people? I think for some, it is just the reality of how emotions work. It's true in other parts of your life, right? Emotions ebb and flow. They rise and they fall. And it's, it's part of the nature of, of our, our humanity, I suppose, that, that to be led by emotions is, is naturally going to make you somebody who's in and out, who's up and down, who's excited and depressed, who's you know, all over the place. And so, you know, for some of us, that's your, that's your problem in life, right? And so to be led by emotions, that's just part of the reality we're dealing with. Jesus recognizes that, by the way. He talks very directly into that situation uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 4, when he talks about the parable of the seed and the sower. And he talks about those who receive, who are like the, the, the soil that, that grows quickly. There, there's a response to God, and then just as quickly it withers and dies away. It was nothing. It wasn't real. And so we're left with this kind of, you know, what's the place of emotion in all this? There's emotion in the Bible which God loves and honors and praises and, and wants from his people. He loves passionate worship. He loves people who, are, who love him. And that is not just a decision of the mind. It's all of your, your gut engaged with passion for God. He loves emotion. He wants it. He's the God who put it in us. 
But at the same time, there's an honest acknowledgement that this cannot be the sum and substance of your faith because we are complex beings. If you think about our faculties, perhaps you can break it down this way, that you are mind, heart, and will. And if only the heart is engaged, the, the emotional faculties, you will not have a faith that sustains you. So for some of you, it's just as simple as that. And I think for, you know, the, the way people engage with spirituality these days very much mirrors what we're seeing here in the crowd. That it can be, it can be a lot like the way people engage with romantic relationships. You know how these days, if you are, if you're in a relationship and you, you cease to feel, what's the term? In love. The whole thing spirals around the drain and then is gone, right? On the way back from the morning service, I was talking with uh, one of our church members who told us that three of, her, three of her flatmates have been through that experience of being, you know, of having almost been engaged and then the guy's just abandoning them. Three of them flip. And that's part of the way we think these days, isn't it? We're so led by the heart. We're so led by emotion. And people bring all of that into the way they engage with the religion. One minute excited, the next minute it's like nothing. It's gone. It's dried up. It's cracked. It's broken. For some, I think part of it is the, the sw- being swept up with the people as well. I think there's definitely this going on here. It's a really interesting phenomenon, right? You can put yourself in one of these towns or villages. People began to talk. Have you heard about this guy, Jesus? He heals the sick. You should go. You should bring your sister. And there's this swelling desire to get near to him and this fear of missing out. So some people, they find that they're... Their whole interest in Christ is, is brought by being carried by, by others, by the crowd, as it were. It's not something that you necessarily own for yourself. And, you know, as humans, we're, we're very much vulnerable to this. I don't think we're that much different from lemmings in one sense. Um, as a kid, you see these patterns all the way through school. One thing is popular for a term, then it dies away. The, the recent thing was flossing, right? don't know if any of you guys know how to floss. <laughs> my, my son learned how to floss. He's never played the game Fortnite. Yeah, he's, he's only... <laughs> I think that's it. He's only five, um, but he knows the thing. He knows how to do it. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a craze. It lasts a moment and then it dies away because this is what we like. We do love to flock together. For so, some people, and this may be true for you this evening, the, the only reason you came is because someone... Your friends come, or because you've always gone, or because there's an interest from, from, your, from, your, from your group. And there's a, very, there's a real danger in that, okay? <laughs> Jesus doesn't look at us as nameless, faceless people. He looks at your heart. He's interested in you as an individual. I think for some it's, you know, and you can see this very much going on here. Look what happens in verse 9 and 10. He says, it says uh, that Jesus told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd would crush him because he'd healed many. And so they were all pressing around to touch him. And so you can see that the emotional reason why people are interested in Jesus is because they feel there's a felt need, a crisis, a yearning, a hunger that drives people to Jesus. I think for all of us that that may have been the case if you came to Christ at some point, that that was something that drove you to him. And so people come to Jesus because they feel guilt. It's a good reason to come to Jesus, by the way. Well, they come to Jesus because they feel lonely. They want to be part of a family, global family, but a real one. Or they feel 
a despair or depression or fear of the future or something. The felt need drives you to Jesus. But whether it keeps you there or not is the question. Because where did these guys go once they were healed? It's clear from the story of the Gospels they didn't remain as disciples. They were not, they were not fixed on Jesus from this moment on. And you see a story of this in Luke, I think it's chapter 17, where there are ten lepers who Jesus encounters. And of course, these guys congregated together because they were not allowed to mix with the normal folk. But Jesus engages with them, and he, he gives them instructions to go, and go away, and, and, uh, and they would experience their healing. And only one of the ten returns to Jesus, and he, he's baffled at why they can't give thanks to God. And this could be true of you, that the thing which brought you to Jesus was some crisis, some felt need. But once it was dealt with, or once it receded into the back of your mind, your, your need for Jesus also receded, and you were no longer interested in him. I think that, you know, what I'm trying to describe to you are the various ways in which people's spiritual life can be like one of those beached whales. You ever seen a beached whale on TV? The tide, perhaps, carried the thing in. And it's like a swell of passion and emotion. You land on the beach and then it starts rotting and dies, a, a, a dead carcass. And that can be, I think, I've seen too many times when that's been the picture of people's spiritual lives. A swell of excitement and interest and passion, but then it dissipated and died. You think, well, what does Jesus want to do with such people? I think he wants to get hold of your mind. He wants to get hold of your conviction. Emotion won't carry you through the Christian life. It can't be the thing upon which you rely anyway, as important as it is. Your whole being, God wants to get hold of your mind. Does it characterize you that your spiritual life is all emotion and no conviction? So that you rise and fall based on how you're feeling. That's the crowd. Here's the second group. It's the demons. I know they're not people. Allow me some liberty here, because I think in some ways they perfectly capture the way some people relate to Jesus. Not only in the Gospels, but also in my own experience. And I, I would describe it like this. There's knowledge without repentance. You see how it says in verse 11 and 12 that when the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You were the Son of God. One of the things you see about the demons is that they have absolute clarity about who Jesus is. They know more clearly than anyone else. And it's unsurprising. They don't see him just on the physical level. They perceive him in the spirit. So those with only the eyes of the flesh, they just see a man. But on the spiritual level, they understand that he is the very son of God. The demons always recognize Jesus. But despite their knowledge of who he is, what you do not see is a corresponding change of stance towards him. Now, I'm not at all sure that that would even have been possible. We're never told that the demons can change their mind or repent. That's only, a hu- that's only a gift God's given to humanity. But it is also a picture of how many people relate to Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. <clears throat> it could be true for you that you have an intellectual understanding without faith. In other words, you have a good grasp of the various Elements of the Christian faith which are essential. The doctrines and beliefs. And perhaps you can articulate them better than anyone else in this room. It does not mean that you have a corresponding faith in Jesus. I know that because I've been in and around people 
who knew theology much better than I ever did, professors and such who could quote from the early church fathers right through to 20th century theologians and could describe the nuances of their Christological perspectives, knew their theology but had no living faith in the risen Lord Jesus. It can also be the case that you have some kind of faith, but it isn't the right kind. The demons didn't just know. They didn't just know the facts around this. They actually believed this, right? They believed who Jesus is. There was no doubt in their mind about who they were encountering. And it raises the question, is it possible for you to believe in Jesus but not believe in him? I think it is. I think it's possible because I think in the Bible, faith, is, faith requires at least two elements. On the one hand, it requires a persuasion of the facts. There's never, no one ever comes to believe in Jesus without becoming persuaded of the facts about him. This is why all the way through the book of Acts, faith is never a blind leap. It's, you see the apostles engaging with the non-believer, persuading them. If they're from a Jewish background, reasoning them through the scriptures until they see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. If they're from a non-Jewish background, demonstrating from creation and also from the scriptures about the greatness of this risen Son of God. They're persuading them intellectually. But that is only the first part of faith because faith also involves trust. It involves handing your life over in its entirety to this Savior. And I, think, I don't think it's that hard to grasp the difference here. I've known people who are afraid of getting on airplanes. They can be intellectually persuaded that it's the most safe mode of transport. That you're more likely to die in a car on the way home than on the plane. But nevertheless, they will not entrust their life to the pilots and the engineers and the craftsmen who designed and built the thing. You can have a fear of being on the doctor's operating table, even if it were to save your life. You know intellectually, rationally, that this person is worth trusting, but you cannot entrust yourself to them. And so I think that is also true in people's spiritual lives. It's possible to know that Jesus is the Son of God, even to believe it in a sense, but not to put your trust in him. What would that look like in your life if that were true? One of the things it would look like, it would be look like an unwillingness to turn from your sin. I want to be clear here. I don't mean, I do not mean that if you're fighting sin, you're not a Christian. When Jesus saves you, he puts within you the desire to be pure and to become like him. And it is a battle. And there are days when you're winning and days when you feel like you're losing. But Christ is at work in you and he's perfecting you. Praise God, it's his job and not ours. His spirit breathes in your heart. He changes you. He reveals his son. God reveals a son to you progressively so that the more you're captivated with Jesus, the easier it is to turn away from these lesser things which are so disappointing anyway. I'm not talking to you if you're in that position. You're fighting it. What I'm talking, who I'm talking to are those of us, and it's too common, too often that I encounter this in church life. People who who know what is right, but choose the other way out of a decided determination not to submit their life to God in some area. And friend, I want to be as clear as I can with you about this. If that's 
the pattern of your life. It, it does mean that you are not a Christian. Go away and read the letter 1 John and you'll discover that. That he who is, goes on sinning is not, is not in Christ, is not part of Christ's family. It's not to say that those who struggle with sin, who fight it, who keep repenting and, and bringing it back to the cross are not Christians. But those who say, I know the way I should walk within it and walk in it and I'm going this way. Despite every warning, despite the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, despite friends speaking into your life. What it says is that you do not value Christ over the thing which you're choosing. And it's a trust issue. Because intellectually you know where Jesus is, but in terms of your actual heart, you're not willing to trust your life to him. Turning from sin is always a trusting because it's, basic, it's a basic transaction. You're saying, I believe Jesus that you will give me more than my sin gives me. That's why it's an exercise of faith, because it doesn't necessarily look like that on the surface. It looks on the surface like the sin is going to give you a whole lot more satisfaction. So to exercise faith is to believe what God says, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. So don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie that the sin is telling you. You trust in Jesus. You may not get the joy the thrill that you want immediately, but you will discover deeper, more lasting, more permanent joy, certainly going into eternity when you trust in Christ. But it's possible to have that knowledge without repentance. I think this is also true for people who are unwilling to make a confession of faith. It's an interesting thing in the Bible that it's not enough just to believe this gospel in your heart and bury it deep down. Paul's clear in Romans 10, he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone, he says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A private, hidden faith is no faith. A faith which is real will express itself, and it will primarily express itself in your mouth. In your ability to say, Jesus is Lord. And then to make a public profession by getting baptized. And then to be able to tell people in your life that you love Jesus. I'm not saying that's not a huge battle. I'm not saying that I don't sympathize with you about the fear that's involved. But Jesus is very clear about this. He doesn't want us to be ashamed of him. What does Jesus want to do with you if you're in this boat? I think what he wants to do is engage your will. If those who are like the crowd are all emotion without conviction, without the mind engaged, there are some of us who are more like the demons in that you know the truth, but what you are not willing to do is make a choice to surrender your life to Jesus. You will not engage the will. God will call on you. Follow him. Turn and follow him. That's the repeated call and the invitation, the summons and the demand of the gospel. Turn from your sin, follow Jesus. I'm not saying or suggesting for a moment that that's a walk in the park. What I'm saying is you must decide. Here's the last group. The family. How interesting the family are. I want to characterize the way they respond to Jesus as familiarity without worship. I don't know if you noticed them right at the end of our passage. That last verse, it says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. 
it literally says, it doesn't actually say the word family, it says those from his side. And it refers, without a doubt, to his family, but also potentially to a slightly wider circle than that. Maybe the friends that he grew up with, because he did grow up, didn't he? He grew up in Nazareth. And he knew, he grew up with a, a cohort of boys who were his age, no doubt, and had friends in the village. Those from his side, those who, and it means those who knew Jesus very well. Not as the great preacher and the healer of the sick and the guy who's casting out demons and the guy in the boat over there preaching to a crowd. Not as that guy, but as the guy we would kick a ball around with if if they kick balls in those days. I have no idea. (laughs) The guy we throw stones in the river with or, you know, whatever whatever toys they had. Um, They knew him as that guy. So they knew him well. They knew his humor. They knew him. They knew they knew they knew his face. They they knew what would make him um, disappointed or what would make him smile. They knew him at that level. They knew him in his humanity. They knew him deeply. But for some reason, they don't believe. That's explicit in John's gospel, by the way. And, uh, in John chapter 7, John just throws it in there. He just says, uh, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's interesting, isn't it? You've got to ask yourself the question, why? And I want to get to which... Among us, this refers to in a moment. But let's just ask the question, why? Why don't his own family believe in him? His own brothers. Anyone with brothers is not actually that surprised, right? But you could ask, well, is it because, because he's shown himself unworthy in some way? That they know the real Jesus. None of you know the real Jesus. We know the real Jesus, and he's not the Son of God. I don't, you know, if it were any of us making the claim to divinity, that would be the reason, Right? My brothers know me too well. They know my sins. They know what makes me angry, what makes me go psycho. My only brothers can get that out of you, right? There's something that brothers do that just elicits sinful anger. Uh, they, know, they, know, they, know all, they know all about you. They know, they know your sin. And the more time you tend to spend with people like me and you, ordinary folk who are not the Son of God, you know, sins become apparent, don't they? Just come on the weekend away. <laughs> 48 hours in one another's company. No mysteries left after that. And you ask, well, is that the reason they don't believe? And of course, that isn't the reason. I'll tell you why. A couple of proofs on this point. One is, one is that the disciples spent three years with Jesus in the most intimate and close proximity. There's no way you can hide the real you when you're with people for that amount of time. And another reason is, and I think this is a very important reason, Jesus' brother James does become a believer. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, he's listing, he lists the various um, witnesses to the resurrection. He talks about some of the apostles and talks about the 500 who saw him at one time. And he names James the brother of Jesus. Such a significant thing. Because you ask yourself, what was it that tipped James from unbeliever to believer? He saw his brother risen from the dead. Suddenly he was like, okay, now I get it. You're the son of God. I'm sorry. And he gave his life to Jesus. And he became one of the great preachers and pastors in the church. An important figure in the Jerusalem church. So we know, we know, we know it wasn't that Jesus had disqualified himself through sin. I think, I think it's rather this. I think it's just that because they'd known him growing up, all they could see was how ordinary he was. Because the Bible's very clear in telling us about the fullness of his humanity. His humanity was like yours and mine. Which meant that they, they'd seen him 
fall and get bumps and cuts when they'd been playing with their, with their stones or whatever they played with. They'd, they'd seen him t- get tired and sweaty and hungry uh, at the end of a long day working as a builder. They'd seen, they'd seen him get food poisoning. They'd seen, they'd seen everything in his life. They'd seen the reality. And even if he's sinless, I don't think sinlessness just grabs you and, and, and wakes you, you know, slaps you around the face and says, hey, I'm sinless. Sinless, in some ways, it's just, well, he, he's just the guy who's always kind. He's the guy who's always sincere, who's always genuine, who tells the truth, who's compassionate to the needy, but it doesn't necessarily preach to you that he's a sinless person. To them, he was just Jesus. Now, let me be clear. The reason why I'm highlighting this is because I think, I think it very much mirrors those of you who've grown up knowing all about Jesus. There's familiarity but it's never turned into worship. It's never become awe. It's never become captivation. It's never become obsession. There's nothing new, nothing novel, nothing mysterious to you. Perhaps if the crowd's problem was that they were all emotion and no conviction, your problem is that there's no emotion. I think it's very commonly true for those who've grown up in Christian homes. All the, the ideas about Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, you can, you can trot it out just as quick as anyone. You can, you know, all the songs back to front. Doesn't mean that you're moved. Doesn't mean that you, you love him. If that was true of you, what would be the evidence of it? Well, look at this family here. What do you see? I'll tell you what you see. You see embarrassment. He's out of his mind, they say. And that's not surprising. There's nothing, there's no one in the world who can embarrass you more quickly than your family, right? When they're acting strange. Just go to any wedding with your parents and see them try and approach the dance floor. You're quickly embarrassed. Now I have the privilege of being that dad to my children. And I'm going to embarrass them badly in the years to come. There's nothing like family to give you the capacity for shame and embarrassment. And this is what the family are experiencing right now. They see him as Jesus the man and know all about him. But what I feel is embarrassed to be around him. And I think that's very true of people who have a deep familiarity with the Christian faith but know all. You can be embarrassed about the things that we believe. Who believes in hell these days? Who believes that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and that he's going to hold you to account? It's embarrassing, isn't it, when you think, wow, the stuff we believe is hard, hard truths. These aren't, this is no joke. The desire to fit in and be like the world around you can, can overwhelm any interest that you have in following Christ wholeheartedly. It might not be the things that you believe. It might be the things you practice because Christians do some pretty cringeworthy things, don't they? We, we sing for prolonged periods of time <laughs> as a crowd, <laughs> even if you can't sing, <laughs> to music which you know, is you know, secondary at best sometimes. <laughs> and you know, this is the reality of the Christian life. And we... We greet each other with pious greetings and, you know, this kind of thing. So you may be embarrassed by all this stuff. 
We're different from the world. And you don't want to be different. You don't want to stand out. It's nicer just to be accepted and just get along with people around you, right? What does Jesus want? I think he wants to get hold of you. I think he wants to captivate you. There's an amazing verse at the beginning of the book of Romans where, you know, Paul, he never took this thing for granted because he didn't grow up in a Christian home. He grew up in a Jewish home for sure, but he didn't know Jesus. And he came late to the party because he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. And by the time he finally did meet Jesus, he'd really made a mess of things. And he'd, he'd sunk into a dark place of extreme fanaticism whereby he was pleased to see Christians getting put to death. We know that explicitly. because The book of Acts tells us about him giving approval to Stephen's death. So he was in a dark, dark place when Jesus came and got hold of him. And Jesus in his mercy doesn't snuff him out or stand on him like a little cockroach. He reveals himself to him, shows him love, shows him compassion, forgives him, turns his life around. So that later on in life, Paul will say, you know, I'm a demonstration. Words to this effect. He says, I'm the worst sinner. And Jesus saved me so that he could show that he could save anybody. That's what Paul says about his life. And a guy like that who goes from a total abyss to acceptance, commissioning, purpose in the Christian mission to change the world through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not going to be embarrassed about Jesus. And he says it explicitly. Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is it that you lack? It may be that you lack conviction. That what drives you to Jesus is excitement and what's ebbed and disappeared is that same excitement. And now what's left is just that carcass on the beach. And what you lack is, is conviction, the mind engaged with Jesus. It could be that some of you lack the will to follow him because even though you know all the right things, you're going this way when Jesus is calling you to go this way and you must make a choice. But for some of you, it's rather that God wants to get hold of your heart, perhaps for the first time. I'm not sure that I can make that happen. (laughs) I know I can't. It has to be a work of God in you. But friend, if you recognize yourself in that picture of the family, familiarity, without worship, without awe, then I encourage you, Call out to Jesus. Ask him to send his Holy Spirit to come and ignite your heart with a passion for his name. Ultimately, when you're asking the question, what does Jesus want? There's a line or refrain in an old hymn that says this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it. White as snow. And it's saying that Jesus, when he went to the cross, did not hold back even one, one iota, one part, one atom of his being in his self-giving love for you on the cross. He didn't hold back and he didn't hesitate. And the cross is the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. Because there he gave his son for those who were enemies to him. And he did not 
hold back and he did not shrink back. And we're told through the Gospels how Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he was subjected to humiliation and shame, public shaming through nakedness and beating and whippings. And the excruciating pain of the cross itself and ultimately of the separation, the experience, the rejection, the forsaking of the Father. Jesus paid it all, it says. Therefore, all to him I owe. And Jesus doesn't want just a part of you. He's not satisfied just with your momentary emotion or your, your great intellect or your, you know, whatever it is. He wants, he wants all of you. He wants you. And partly that comes as a demand. You know, he's the Lord of the universe. But it also comes as an invitation because Jesus, he wants you. He loves you. He wants to fulfill and fill your life with joy and allow you to know the God who created you so that you can know why you are here. He wants to wipe away your sin. He wants to give you an eternal purpose which outweighs any of the momentary, temporary things that you can chase in this life. He wants to get a hold of you, friend. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We're going to respond in worship. I'd love for, um, Kaylee's going to lead us in the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine. I want to encourage you just to remain seated for a few moments because, oh, what a precious opportunity for us to, to approach Jesus and say to him, Lord, I want to give you my all. Get a hold of me entirely. Maybe you are not a Christian and this is your moment. This is when you're, you can decide for Christ. Do so. All you need to do is say to him, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need forgiving. I believe in you. It is that simple. There's a verse in this song which says this, Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. He's saying if, if you owned everything, everything, and then presented everything you owned to Jesus as an offering, a sacrifice, he said that wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't be enough to express his greatness and majesty. In view of that love, that love so amazing, so divine, that demands everything. But praise him that he, he doesn't mind that we just bring meager offerings. He is pleased. He loves it when you just give yourself. Will you bow your head with me and let's just pray as we respond in worship. It would be wonderful if uh, some of you feel like you have words you want to share or any uh, prophetic thing that you know, God's awakening in you, feel free during this time of worship. But just for this moment, let's just come to him as individuals and personally respond. Lord, you are worthy. It's so sad that in our limited humanity, we do not always perceive your greatness. It's true. How blind we can be. But Lord, I want to invite you. Will you, just, will you just open eyes tonight, Lord? Those who are emotionally stunted or those who, are, who haven't really grasped 
who you are. We haven't chosen for you. Whatever it is, Lord, get a hold of us, we pray. Turn our lives around. Make us disciples. Jesus, you paid it all. All to you we owe. Whatever it is we've been holding back, we want to lay it down. You don't just want admirers, you want disciples. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.